Thank you. Well, it's a um, joy and a privilege to be here. And so I want to start today, I want to share a little bit about our story, about what God has been doing uh, through uh, in Vietnam. I live in Vietnam. And then I want to kind of pull out some lessons that we have learned that may or may not be helpful to you. Hopefully there's something you can take away today. And so, I, yeah, like I said, I want to start just by sharing a little bit about our story. And so I actually uh, was born in New Zealand. That's where the accent's from, if you're wondering. And about 20 years ago, I moved to Vietnam. And I had a real heart to help the poor. I turned up and I got involved with an organization. And we were taking on all those usual projects that you think of. We had micro-enterprise loans. We had vocational training and all of those good things that you do. And after about three years, I started to question what was happening. And I started to ask myself, is this all that we can really see? We were seeing some people helped somewhat, but we weren't seeing transformation. We weren't seeing major communities changed. We were seeing a few people helped somewhat. And in fairness, we were working in an environment where it's actually a communist country. And so the government would send uh, four or five security people with us wherever we went, and they would write down every word that we said. And so um, that, again, limited kind of the impact that we were able to have. But I kind of got to that point, and I was young, you know, in my 20s, and thought there must be more. There must be more that that God has. This is God's great promise to the vulnerable is that a few people will make a few changes. So I went to a conference. It was actually put on by Disciple Nations Alliance, who's here in um, Phoenix. Well, the big Phoenix. And uh, so I went to a conference, and Darrow Miller got up and spoke, and he talked about the fact that ideas have consequences, that what we believe has a fundamental impact on our behavior. In fact, he took it so far that in my memory, it might not be quite right, but in my memory, he challenged us and said, if we want to see poverty end, the answer to ending poverty is to change people's ideas. And I was kind of like, wow, okay, well, that's a little different from running programs. And then uh, Bob Moffat got up and he challenged us and he said, the answer is the church. We need to be engaged with the church. And in Vietnam, we weren't engaged with the church. It was illegal to be engaged with the church. And in fact, one of the areas where we were working, the church had grown. By no um, <laughs> fault of ours, I can't take any credit for that, the church grew. And so they, uh, the government removed us from that area because they said, you must have had an influence. And so we were very careful to have nothing to do with the church because we wanted to stay in the country. But Bob got up and challenged us and he said, it's the church. If we want to see God glorified, if we want to see nations changed, if we want to see communities transformed, we need to be working with the church. And so uh, I, just, I went home and I prayed about it and I tried to look for models and I tried to work out who is doing this. And I couldn't find anyone who was currently uh, doing this. So I decided I wanted to uh, start a little experiment. So I decided to design a program that had three goals. Goodness knows where we are. So the first goal was to see God glorified. In the areas where we worked, the Christians were very looked down on. What would happen is a communist government would help everyone who wasn't a Christian. In fact, they used it as a way to stop the growth of the church. They would come to the Christians and say, if you renounce your faith, then we'll give you a house or we'll give you a cow or we'll give you whatever. So the Christians remained the poorest in communities. In very animistic cultures, they would look down on the Christians and say, your God is not very powerful. Look at you. You're the poorest. You're the least. And so uh, our first goal was that God would be glorified, that nobody would say, your God is weak, that people would know our God is powerful. 
There's no reason why someone should say, our God is weak. Our second goal was to see the churches strengthened. In reality, there have been kind of church planting uh, groups come through and they had planted churches, but sometimes what would happen is uh, someone would go in and they would see the village chief uh, converted and then he would say, okay, all of us are now Christians. But you would get to these villages and you would discover that the whole message that they understood of the, of the Christian faith was that if you cut down your altar, then you'll go to heaven. And as you may notice, there's a huge piece missing out of that. Well, most of that. Jesus. We don't have Jesus. There's no, no, the great center of our faith is not even there. So we wanted to see churches strengthened. We wanted the bride of Christ to be all that the bride of Christ could be. And the last one was we wanted to see uh, communities move out of poverty. We believe that uh, God didn't intend for any of us to live with just such huge suffering of listening to their children cry because they're hungry. So we wanted to see people move out of poverty. So we came up with this program based on these ideas that I heard at the conference from Disciple Nations. And we wanted to uh, teach uh, people to know and live in obedience to God and his truth. So we said if ideas are important, if what people believe is important, then we want to help people to understand God's truth as it applies to every part of life. Because maybe we know how it applies to Sunday morning, but we don't know how it applies to things like our health. Does God care about our health? Is this really a God topic or is it not? So we would start to come in and we would say, your health is very important to God. This body was created by God. It was designed by him. He has things that he expects you to be doing. You're supposed to be out there uh, looking after your family, serving in your community. There's a whole bunch of things. And if you are not practicing basic hygiene, so you're sick all the time, that's not treating God's good gift well. So your health, it's important to God. Every area of your life needs to be lived in obedience to God. And so we would challenge him. We also uh, started to challenge Christians to use their own resources to show God's love to their community. So we call it acts of love. We said, we want you to go out to your communities and do acts of love. We want you to use what you have to serve your communities. Now, you need to understand these people were incredibly poor. For three months a year, they didn't have any food. They would scavenge bark or eat leaves or grass or whatever they could eat to fill their bellies, but they didn't have food. And so now we've got this great idea that came from Bob, so I'll blame him. And he said, to, uh, tell them to use their own resources. And so we said, okay, well, we'll challenge them to use what they have. And so they would start with things like uh, going out and working in the field. So they would find someone, there may be someone who was very sick in their community at that time, and they would say, um, uh, you know, they would go and help them to work in their field and get their field planted, because if they didn't get their field planted that year, there would be no harvest that year. And so it was a very simple thing to do, and they all had the ability to go and plant a field, and it, if 30 people came, it only took half a day. And so they would start to look and say, what can we do to serve our community using what we have? Then the last thing that we did was to develop basic life skills. We started to realize people were missing basic health skills. They could start to understand that God cared about health, but we also needed to know, well, what does it look like to practice good hygiene? And so we had this uh, wonderful idea. We wanted to start a little pilot project with 10 churches. That was our great dream. And I thought, you know, if we find 10 churches and we can kind of walk along with them and see what happens and, um, you know, help them out when they get stuck and, and really disciple them. Well, God had a whole nother plan. And we ended up starting with 160. 
And within 18 months, they actually became 600. And 600 is not a good number, <laughs> in case you're wondering. I'm not one of those people who like big numbers. In fact, my team will tell you I always try and keep numbers small. I like to be in control. It's kind of my besetting sin. I like to be in control. So 600 is not a uh, number where you get to stay in control. At 600, it became a pure experiment. Because all of a sudden, it becomes, what is God going to do? Because God had also put all these churches in areas where I couldn't access them. They were all the minority areas. So a white girl cannot go there. Well, white anyone can't go there. And so uh, my husband is Vietnamese. He could go and visit these areas, but I could never go there. So I couldn't get involved. I couldn't help them. I couldn't solve their problems. It was really up to them and God. And so uh, I got completely kind of stepped out of the picture. And so we were writing trainings and we were teaching them to the, we had 60 facilitators, so we were teaching the facilitators and they were going back to the churches and I was praying and fasting and saying, God, I have no idea what we're going to do. And they're writing these sweet little reports, oh, we built a, you know, fixed some potholes or we did whatever in our community, we picked up some litter and I was just like this, I have no idea where we're going. And one day I'm sitting in a leadership meeting and one of the leaders said to me, in my area, we've all been transformed. All our communities are transformed. We've all moved out of poverty. And I wasn't at this point where I said, hallelujah. In fact, my reaction was, oh my goodness, the leaders have no idea what we're doing. If they think we've been transformed, clearly they don't know what transformed means. So we've, things are even worse off than I thought. I thought we were just not knowing, but <laughs> now even the leaders don't know what we're doing. So I said, well, tell me about this whole idea of we've been transformed. What do, you, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, before we didn't have food for the whole year, now we have food for the whole year. Before in all of our uh, areas, she was responsible for 40 communities. Uh, all of our communities, we didn't have schools. Now we have schools and all of the children attend our school. Before we had no wells and we had no uh, toilets. Now we have wells and toilets for everyone. Before, we had a terrible relationship with the government. The government would arrest us, lock us up, regularly come to the church and cause chaos. Now we work together with the uh, government. The government admire us and, in fact, the government said to them, uh, we're a bit frustrated with you because, you know, we went to university, we've studied hard, we know everything, and you, you've only been to primary school and yet you're wiser than us because your God keeps giving you the answers. It's just not fair. But the government, once they obviously towards the church changed. In fact, they were in communist governments. They would hold up the Bible and say, if we want to understand what happened to those Christians, if we want to understand the source of transformation, we need to read this book and find out. The answer is in this book. So they also said our relationship with the community changed. One of the ways that they uh, control the growth of the church is when there's uh, Christians in a community, they go into the community and they say, these people have evil spirits in them. So you need to be very careful. They're going to bring uh, evil to your community. And so the, the community themselves are the ones that often persecute the church because they're very worried about these evil spirits that have suddenly arrived. And so as the community saw the church go out and love their communities, they went out and loved people that weren't even part of the church. They started to say, I don't think these people have evil spirits. They have good spirits. And so... Uh, they, uh, the relationship with the community was healed. And in fact, they got to a place where 90% of people in the community were going to church. God had restored it. So they saw marriages restored. They saw many things. I've forgotten them all, but many things. 
And uh, they said, we're now at the point when we want to go and do something to show God's love to our community. We have to go to the neighbouring community. We have no more um, uh, problems in our own community. We just have to go next door. So I said, well, I have absolutely no idea what transformed meant. I'm kind of all going on this path, but we'll call that transformed. That will do. That's uh, good enough for me. We're going to call it transformed. Today we've actually seen over 500. It's more than 500 now. We just haven't, we just graduated a whole bunch more communities have moved out of poverty, but we haven't counted them. (laughs) So uh, later this month, we count. But uh, we've seen over 500 communities come out of poverty. And actually in Vietnam, they did a study because they said, we want to understand, the government said, we want to understand what has happened. Why did all these communities suddenly move out of poverty and all the other ones didn't? Like, what's going on? Because our program is not registered, it's not legal, it all happens underground. Thank you. <laughs> and so uh, uh, so they sent a bunch of PhD students and they said, go and interview these communities and find out why have they moved out of poverty. And so they came back and they said the reason that they moved out of poverty is because they understood their Bible and applied it to their lives. So the government wasn't thrilled. I believe the government wasn't thrilled. So they got a new group of PhD students and they said, make sure you interview the oldest to the youngest. We want to know the real reason why these people moved out of poverty. And so they came back and they said, the real reason that these people moved out of poverty is because of their God. They walked in obedience to their God and their God lifted them out of poverty. And that's very much our testimony, that God is lifting communities out of poverty as his church is walking in obedience to him. So I want to show you a quick video and get a drink uh, just to, so you can hear from the uh, people in the, uh, in the churches that we're working with. So hopefully the video works and you'll get to see. Before we study the TCT program, I'll just only care about the spiritual matter uh, but neglect the other area of life. How do we love our neighbor? We go out and we show them in action that we really care. Not just talking, show them what love really means. We have done so many projects, but one of the projects that really caused people to think and caused the government to respond is that we decided to collect the money and the resources within the community and we build a suspension bridge. So it's a love so it's the bridge called love so they named this bridge is love it helped the community so much before it take them more than half a day to walk from their uh, house to their farm since they have the bridge it take half an hour to drive husband and wife can can go and work together and in the afternoon they can drive home and look after their children so it solved a, a lot of social problem and also their income increased before they only carry 30 kilos on their back. And it take them a day. Now they put on the motorbike, they can carry a couple of tons a day. Before they will have a couple of months uh, without food. By October, November, they run out of rice. But now they have food for all year round. So it's a, a major change in their lives. The government is so amazing, we're shocked 
they can't imagine that with their bare hand, without any machine, without any modern tool, that they can build such a strong bridge like this. Tons of material, tons of steel wire. There must be somebody in your church that has engineering background or the skill that they can do this. But we said no. Uh, we don't have anyone who has that skill. We just know how to do it. My brother here, somehow he designed the bridge and he lead people to build the bridge. When the government want to build another bridge in different area, they come to our bridge and measure and try to copy the design that we have so that they can build exactly the same bridge in another area. This is just some, another amazing story that God really used uh, to impact the government. So as a result of this work, people see God's love expressed through his people in action. Many people became Christian. Many people joined in the church. Uh, before, uh, 70% of the community are not Christian. But through the acts of love, now almost everyone in the community are Christian. In this area, they believe that they were born poor, they would die poor. Fatalism. They were trapped in the lies that they can't change the future. So by doing all these things, they understand that they were created in the image of God. They are the steward of the land, the steward of the creation, and they are fulfill the mandate that God has for them. I thank God for uh, the TCT program because through this program, God has brought a big change to our communities. We have built hundreds of kilometers of roads to the farming area. We have built hundreds of toilets. We built 10 bridges and we built about 100 houses for widows and orphans. And so we are really grateful for God that he has used our obedience, small obedience, to bring the big impact to our communities. Okay, so that's... Uh yeah, that's what the churches have to say about it. So God is doing amazing things uh, around the world. The program's actually expanded now from Vietnam, and we're actually in, I've forgotten how many, more than 12 countries are doing this program. And so God is just continuing to do the same things again and again and again. So what I wanted to do is just to go through some of the things that we learned along the way that... Um, like I said, hopefully some of these ideas are helpful to you. And just to introduce some of the things that God has taught us as we've been doing this program. And so the first thing that we've learned is that the local church is capable. And we went in, and to be honest with you, when I started this program, I really didn't think it would work. I didn't think there was any way that a bunch of incredibly poor little churches was, were ever going to find their way out of poverty. In fact, the reason I wanted to work with 10 is because I just knew that us as a large NGO were going to drive in with our trucks full of resources and save the day when they got stuck. 
And yet one of the lessons I learned is that the church is phenomenally capable. The church around the world is able to do so much more than we could ever imagine. I was just telling Jim, I uh, just came from the IWMC and they were talking about the whole thing of the unreached people groups. And one of the things that's happening in Vietnam at the moment is the churches are going out and they're reaching out to the unreached people groups because they're saying these people used to be our enemies and God's called us to love our enemies. So we're going to go and love our enemies. And as they love their enemies, they're seeing these uh, groups come to Christ. They've seen over 17 unreached people groups come to Christ. And these are the churches that we look down on. These are the churches we don't think they have so much going for them. We look and we say they don't even have walls. And yet they're the ones that God is using to change the nation and the nations. So I really want to challenge you that the local church is capable. We go in and we so often see the lack. But actually God is doing amazing things among them. Now, it is true that sometimes we need to go in and help them to unlock their potential. Sometimes they don't understand all that they're able to do. Sometimes they believe the lie, we can't do anything. Where actually they can, they can do so much. And one of the joys of my life is that I get to go around the world and I get to tell the story to churches in the Congo, to churches in uh, Uganda, to churches all over the place. And I say, God can use you to change your community. And watching churches get hope. Because every one of those churches is just as able as the churches we just saw in the video to transform their communities. So we as a Church of America, well, I'm not we, you as a Church of America have a wonderful opportunity to help to be part of unlocking that process. But we need to also be able to look and see that all that God has put in this bride, all that God is doing through the church already. And even as you think about engaging with the vulnerable, even here in Phoenix, are there churches that you can be linking arms with that are already planted amongst the vulnerable? Because those churches are also incredibly capable. So I know it's easy to say, yes, we know the local church is capable. We are the church. But what are other churches that you can link arms with? What are some of the churches from um, the majority world churches? You've got many churches here in Phoenix. How can you be linking arms with some of those churches? What would it look like to partner with some of those churches and help them see their potential? Another lesson we learned is that God is powerful. So for the longest time, I would walk around and I would try to work out how in the world did this work? So one minute I'm getting all these stories about how they're doing all these cute little pickup litter things and praise the Lord. And then the next minute they've moved out of poverty and there didn't seem to be a really good correlation there. Like I couldn't quite work it out. So I would keep saying to them, well, I don't understand what happened. How did you get tons of steel and tons of concrete? Who gave it to you? We never gave you anything. So where did you get all of this? And they would say to me, oh, our land grows more, so we have more. And bridges, all the I mean, you work harder. And they would say, how can we work harder? We're busy building houses for the widows, bridges, all the earth. We, we don't have time to work harder. And I was like, well, clearly you work harder. You just don't know it. I mean, my very Western thinking was like, I, I know that you must work harder. That's the only answer. And uh, yeah. And so finally, uh, we had a huge drought in Vietnam. God decided to make it a bit clearer for me. So we had a huge drought in Vietnam, and uh, all the crops were dying. And in the areas where we work, they grow a root vegetable. They grow cassava. And so they could see all the leaves dying on the crops and they met in the churches and they prayed and they said, God, send rain. And it never rained. And so it came time to harvest their crops and it still hadn't rained. 
and they wonder what was going to happen. They decided, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll go out and we'll dig up the ground and we'll see maybe God was gracious to us and saved something. Maybe there's something in the ground. And they dug up that ground and there wasn't the normal crop. There was three times the normal crop. Ground that grew one ton normally grew three tons. And because in, throughout the rest of the country the crop died, the price of that crop tripled. And so they're able to get often uh, six to nine times what their normal income they got that year because God provided. And it was such a lesson to me. On all of our materials, we write the verse, which is coming. Uh, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And forever we had written this on the bottom of all our reports. And forever we had taught them, your role is to go out and humble yourselves and pray and seek God's face and go out and love your communities. And it's God who will bring transformation. And yet forever I had never really thought that maybe heal your land meant heal your land. I have no idea what I thought that verse meant. Despite the fact I used it myself, I'm the one that typed it onto the bottom of the reports I still have no idea what I thought that meant. And God said to me, you know, what do you think? Heal their land. And again and again and again. I don't think we've got time, but there's many, many stories. In fact, in the books on your tables, there's many stories of how God turned up and did miraculous things. In these 500 villages, if you go in and if you hear these stories, you'll hear stories of miracles. You'll hear stories of God doing the most amazing things. So there's one area where they're going to be late for whatever you've got after this. But never mind. It's a good story. So there's one area where they had this dream. They wanted to build 35 stable houses. And so they got 17 done, 17 were complete, and then they ran out of materials. And like I said, these are poor villagers. And they were like, we've given all that we have, and we have nothing else. So they decided what we will do is we'll meet and we'll pray and fast all night, and we'll ask God for building materials. And so they prayed and they fasted and the next morning all these trucks came driving into town and started dumping building materials outside the church and so they came dashing out and they said wait we didn't order these we didn't pay for these we have no money we can't what are you doing you can't just dump building materials outside of our our church and they said well the government wanted to clear the warehouse and so we drove down the road we drove left we drove right we are sick of driving we've dumped the materials your problem we're not picking them up again and so they would uh able actually to finish these houses but what's amazing about these materials and is the story behind them these materials are being used to destroy the church so these materials were that were the materials that they used when they went from house to house to the christians and said if you are willing to renounce your faith then you will get a house this was the materials of those houses Because no one had renounced their faith, the materials were still sitting in the warehouse, and now the government, national government, were bringing the new materials. Well, what happened now was that the local government said, hey, if you give a whole bunch of building materials to the church, then it turns into houses for all the needy people in the community. This is a really good scenario, because usually if you give building materials to someone, it turns into alcohol. But when you give it to the church, it turns into a house. So then they went around all the other churches where they saw the churches reaching out to their communities and they said, can we bring you building materials? If we bring you building materials, will you build houses for your communities? And so the churches said yes. So the churches went out and started to build houses for their communities. 
And many, many, many came to Christ as they saw the love of the church. But it all started with this program, well, materials out of this program that were designed to stop the church. And it's such a reminder to us that God is powerful. God is able to do above and beyond what we could ever imagine. And so uh, I'm going to move to my next point. (laughs) So another lesson that we learned is that truth is transformative, that the beliefs that we have are hugely powerful in our lives. And so some of the beliefs that people have in in the areas where we work that are locking them into poverty include uh, the ones coming. (laughs) We are born poor and we will die poor. The gods control everything. So they very much believe that uh, the gods determine. And so if you say to them, why does this piece of land grow a lot and this piece of land, it's not growing very much at all? They won't say, well, this farmer gets up every morning and he farms very diligently. He works incredibly hard. He does lucky uh, practices. And this guy, he's out drinking tea most of the time. They will say, this guy is lucky. This guy, he's not lucky. And this Belief totally controls their behavior. They're very sensible people. If you totally believe that luck is going to determine how much you grow, then how hard would you work? I certainly wouldn't do much work. I would sit home and hope to be lucky. And so, but you can imagine that lie also locks you in poverty because it doesn't really give you any incentive to get out and do much. That lie robs you. Another lie we are not important. We work with the minority people. And so the minority people are, con- are looked down on in Vietnam. They're considered the lowest or the least people. And so uh, they really believe that they're not important. So they don't bother to send their children to high school or to university because they believe, what's the point? We'll just be farmers. We're not the important people. And so, again, it's a lie that is locking them into poverty. It's a lie that Satan's used to rob them. They don't see that they are made in the image of God. They don't see their potential. They don't see all that God has made them to be. Another common lie is that God only cares about spiritual things. God's very concerned with what we do on a Sunday morning. He's not so concerned with Monday afternoon. And so we try and say, no, God cares about Monday afternoon as well. What does it mean that we bring God into every area of life? What does it mean that we, we uh, care for our land as if we're stewarding it, as if it's God's land, as if the earth really did all belong to God? What would it look like to steward our land with that understanding? And so we challenge them to say, what are these? What are some, the next one? (laughs) We need someone to help us. We can't do anything ourselves. This is a terrible lie that all around the world you'll see people believing. We need someone else to help us. They don't see the potential that God has given them. They don't see all the resources that God has given them. They miss out on seeing the talents, the skills, the creativity that God has given them. And instead they believe the lie. We need someone else to help us. We can't do anything ourselves. But in reality, they can do so much. Uh, that picture, I'm going to go backwards, is actually of a man digging a well. And so for years, generations in fact, they had always walked to get water. They had to walk to the nearest river to get water. And then one day they said, well, hey, maybe God gave us water. Maybe if we dig a well, we would find water. And so they hand dig their wells. It takes kind of 10 people. They each go down. They dig for 15 minutes. They come back up. The next person goes down. He digs for 15 minutes. He comes up, and they get this well dug. It takes two or three days, and they have a well. And again and again, they dug and found water. But for generations, they've been walking to get water. 
when all that they needed to do was to dig for two days and God had already put the water there. And so again and again, as they started to believe, maybe we can solve our own problems. God unlocked opportunities for them to be able to. Another terrible, terrible The next one was we are too poor to give. Another terrible, terrible lie. You know, um, God has promised to give us in the same measure as we give. So what does that mean to the poor? Do we leave the poor kind of excluded from God's blessings? Well, you're too poor to give, so now God isn't going to bless you. So that sucks. (laughs) So clearly that's not the message of the Bible. God's heart is totally for the vulnerable. So we said, no, you're not too poor to give. What is it that you can give? Now, maybe you don't have material resources. Like I said, many of the areas we worked, they didn't have food for three months of the year. So there wasn't a whole lot of material resources for them to give. But they had creativity, they had skills, they had ideas, they had time. They had all sorts of things that they could give. And as they started to give, they were amazed at the way that God blessed and multiplied. And even for them, they weren't weren't ever entirely sure about where all the resources came. I mean, you heard the guy even in the video, he talks about, we just knew how to build a bridge. I don't know how we knew how to build a bridge. No one is an engineer. But we just knew, and it was such a good bridge that the government now uses it as a model for everywhere else. But it's this idea that God just kept multiplying and kept giving back to them as they walked in obedience, as they did what they had, that God multiplied and gave back to them. And not in a kind of a prosperity, gospel type way. It wasn't, if you go in and you talk to them and you say, how have you seen God bless you? They would say, now my community has this or that. Now other children are able to go to school. Now those people over there have a house. It's not about what God did for me. When you talk about how did God bless, they look at their whole community. So uh, one of the ideas that we talk about is that truth is transformative. And I want to even challenge you guys as you look at your congregations or whatever issues that you face, whether it's broken families or whatever, what are the beliefs that are locking people into these situations? And what is the truth that we bring? You know, I, this, we truly believe that what we believe has this massive impact. And like I said to you, my belief was that the church wasn't capable. God had to give me 600 churches to rip my hands off it so that he could prove to me that the church was capable. But that belief has an impact. If I believe that the church isn't capable, then I'm not going to let them be capable. I'm going to turn up and get involved and solve every problem. I'm not going to give them the opportunity to reach their potential. But what about you guys? What are some of the issues that you face and what are some of the beliefs that drive those issues? We need to kind of hit things at this root cause if we really want to see change. Another... uh, idea is that resources are everywhere. So often we end up in the situation where we feel like the West is giving to the, the rest. And in fact, even as a, um, uh, you know, it's easy to set up organizations and we raise money in the West and then we go and spend it around the world. And we kind of felt a little proud of ourselves. Local community. So we all these resources that you see for all these wells and all these sorts of things actually come from the local community. So we thought, oh, we kind of understand this idea that resources are everywhere. And then God started to challenge us. And he said, well, actually, you show favoritism in your fundraising. And so one of the girls in the leadership team said to us, you're showing favoritism. We're showing favoritism. When someone gives us a large grant out of the U.S., we all celebrate. When a poor widow offers to uh, provide a chicken for the training, we don't high-five each other. 
We don't. It doesn't happen. We show favoritism. So we started to have to ask ourselves, how do we thank people the same no matter where they are? How do we raise resources all around the world? How do we raise resources even in the poorest communities to start to cover our program costs? What does it mean to not show favoritism? So we finally, in our Vietnam, we're now at a place where we've dropped our budget to just a third of the money comes from outside. And the rest of it's given by the, the poorest churches. And do you know, we even kept falling into the same trap of believing, well, the resources are with the wealthy. Because then we said, well, where do we know wealthy people in Vietnam? How can we get their money? And it was like God said, no, wrong again. So we ended up going to the churches that we were working with. And now they get to sponsor another church. And it's exciting to them. We get to sponsor another church to do this program. But then we decided what we really need to do is mobilize prayer. If God is powerful, if this is the most important thing about our work, then what we need to do is we need to mobilize prayer. We need more prayer. So how do you think we went about that? We said, let's make all these pretty materials for the West so they can pray for the rest. (laughs) And God had to stop us again and say, wait, resources are around the world. How do we mobilize prayer in every single nation? Isn't it exciting? You see the people when I go to the DR Congo and I say, let's pray about genocide in India and they learn about it and they say, yes, we can be part of praying for this. I was recently in East Africa and someone came up to me from Swaziland and he said, all my life I've prayed for Vietnam. And I was like, that is so cool. The church of Swaziland, because we were on the persecuted churches list, they were praying for us. Resources are everywhere. How can we mobilize the resources that are everywhere? Resources are with the vulnerable. So often we, we, we handicap the vulnerable because we see the resources as being with us. And we don't look to see the potential that God has everywhere. And then the last one is that the kingdom starts with a mustard seed. And I think one of our big challenges is so often we want to make big plans. And we have big ideas and we have big potential and we have big numbers and big everything. And when we do that, sometimes we leave out the vulnerable because it's very hard to jump in and engage. If we went into communities and said, okay, we're going to start with this. We've got a vision for your community change. So we're going to have, you know, I don't know, 20 new houses and 20 behind with our big road. And this is what we're going to do. And let's get started. Nobody would get started with us. We leave them behind with our big dreams and our big potential. Instead, we go into these communities and we say, okay, This year, the big goal is to get two acts of love done. Two little things to show God's love to your community. Maybe you go and pick up litter for one and you help in the field for another. That's all we want to see happen in the first year. How many more vulnerable churches do you think can get started with us when that's a great goal? That's where we start. In five years, they move out of poverty because God is able to multiply those little efforts. But we need to be careful God, the Bible tells us the kingdom starts with a mustard seed. It doesn't start with our big dreams and our, what are they called now? Big, hairy, audacious goals or wigs. Now we're in wigs. Wildly important goals. They start with mustard seeds. And we need to be looking out for the mustard seeds because when we're working at the level of mustard seeds, that's when the whole world can engage with us. When we go on with our wigs or our big, hairy, audacious goals or all of those things, we kind of leave people behind. So we want to be careful and we want to remember that the Bible messages were to start with the mustard seed. So that's uh, basically what I wanted to share today. I think Danae's going to...
hopefully turn, <laughs> I've lost an A, uh, give you some questions to discuss. But I just really wanted to encourage you. The church is capable. God is powerful. Truth is transformative. Resources are everywhere. And we need to start with the mustard seed. Great. Thank you, Anna. We're going to... Yeah.